1: Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or is I prefer to think of it Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, yeah. you know, we had a pretty we had a pretty good childhood. Remember when dad used to take us to that hill and put us in tires and roll us down roll us down the hill? Only vaguely. Yeah, those were good years. <laughs> those were good years. I really, did he do that? Pretty... I don't actually remember that. No. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. That <laughs> be, I mean, I do kind of vaguely remember being inside a tire at some point in my life, but I don't, I don't think I was rolled down a hill in one.
0: I do. I had so much childhood and I have so few memories of it that I just <laughs> assume true. whatever anyone tells me is true. <laughs>
1: You know, like remember when dad used to put us in tires and roll us? I mean, I couldn't actually, now that I've said it out loud, I don't know whether or not that happened.
0: I was a child for thousands and thousands of days and I have like seven memories.
1: So yeah. who knows? John, I, I did this gag a while back. We made a, a video on our Bizarre Beasts YouTube channel. Yeah. YouTube.com slash Bizarre Beasts, where we talked about binturongs mm-hmm. and binturongs pee smells a little bit like buttered popcorn. Yeah, I know. Which is real weird. Right. And- Uh, And uh, a person who works at a, uh, a wildlife place where they have wild animals, including a binturong, sent me a jar mm. of Binturong pee. And it was, and like, this is great. It means I can, as a part of this thing, smell the Binturong pee and tell you what it actually smells like to me. Not just like that you've heard this, but this is like a direct report with a man holding a jar with a towel in it that is soaked in the scent of a Binturong. Oh boy. And it's a good gag. It's a good thing where I'm a content creator and I will do what it takes to create a, to create a content. But now I do not know what to do with this jar of Binturong smell. Well, it's been sitting on my desk now for like a like a month and a half. I've got a solution. It's
0: not like you have an actual organism that you're going to like mess up the Montana wilderness or whatever by yeah. introducing this new kind of tree frog. <laughs> it's a liquid like you just pour it out and then
1: you wash extensively, wash oh, out the it's, container. <laughs> it's not a, It's not like just a jar of pee. It's like a jar of the towel that the Binturung peed on. Oh. and it, But it is like, there's like a dewy inside just because it was okay. warmer wherever it was than where it is now.
0: Okay. I have a new idea then, which is that you need to dig a hole and you need to bury it. <laughs> you need to have a kind of a series of farewell rituals that the whole family participates in and then you bury it. We have recently buried- Do you want to smell it? No. I can send it to you. Oh, no. Thank you. I appreciate the gesture, but I'm good. I, I'm i all
1: full up on <laughs> other organisms pee right j- now. Just j- jars of things. Just jars of things. I am kind of, you know, I like a little bit having a bunch of weird stuff. I've got two uh, decapitated bobble johns. Yeah. It's just over the years, all of my bobbleheads- Those aren't that
0: weird, actually. The bobblehead versions of me, I would say 95% of them have been accidentally or purposefully decapitated.
1: Yeah, they they, they do have a, a seeming just a, a weakness at the neck, I suppose. Yeah, which...
0: well, the, the whole underlying problem with bobbleheads, right, is that they're a little top-heavy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, we wanted to make it accurate, and and you and I both also have weaknesses at the neck. It's true. and. The rest of our bodies, too. This first question comes from Scott. We're going to answer some questions from
0: our listeners because that's what we do on the podcast. Scott writes, Dear John and Hank, what's the deal with works entering the public domain? Mm. What does that phrase even mean? Does it just mean that, like, everyone owns it now? Like, I recently purchased a new copy of Dracula. That $12 had to go to (laughs) someone, right? I get that I'm paying for, like, printing and binding and whatnot. But could I just legally print my own copies of Dracula and sell them? Yes. Yes. You could. Yes. In fact, we've thought about doing that. (laughs) Yeah. We've thought about doing a series of public domain, like beautiful books that are expensive and that people buy and then we give all the money to charity. Yeah. But then that seemed like a lot of work. And actually, <laughs> publishing—it's
1: <laughs> also hard. Yeah,
0: publishing is really difficult. The margins, yeah, the profit margins aren't that great mm-hmm. because
1: of the uh, aforementioned binding and whatnot. Yeah, there's a there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, especially to make something that that's attractive, but but even to make something that's readable, like book design, is hard. It's a lot of work. I don't understand why it's so hard. But I tried to do it once, and I was like, oh my god, this is a high skill job. Um, It's one of those things that's like uh, it, it, it would you would imagine putting words on a piece of paper in a way that is attractive would be something that you would be able to do. No, but it is not. Nope. You have to have a lot of skill to do it well.
0: Yeah. And a lot of training as well, I think. So, yeah,
1: that that's one reason.
0: The other thing to remember in this, Scott, is that like as a rule, the author doesn't get that much of the cost of a book. Right. Like the, the money that goes to the author is not that large a percentage of the the book cost. And so removing that, which is what happens when a book enters the public domain, doesn't shave that much off the cost of a book. Now, there are like Dover thrift editions and stuff that cost like two or three dollars and that, mm-hmm. you know, are, are made to be as inexpensive as possible, smallest possible margins, the least space between lines, et cetera. Yeah, but in general this stuff costs money. Interestingly, even ebooks kind of cost money. Like it's still a fair
1: amount of work. Yeah, it's 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 work to prepare them to be an ebook. Once it once they are an ebook it is basically free to make like another copy, which is the nice thing about ebooks. But but this is why you can download like you could for example download Dracula for free no problem. But getting a physical copy, especially if it's going to look nice, costs money in the same way that like my book costs money, but, you know, minus the 50 cents or whatever I'd make on a paperback. I have often been asked how
0: I feel about the prospect of my work someday entering the public domain. And the answer is that I feel delighted if my, yeah, if there's a single person who wants to read my books the day after they uh-huh. enter the public
1: domain, dead
0: me is going to be so happy. <laughs>
1: I mean, it really should happen sooner. And there's interesting effects, right? Like, like, yeah, the first Agatha Christie books are now entering the public domain. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has been for a long, long time. And that's why there's so many Sherlock things. Yeah. And much fewer Poirot and Miss Marple things like you can like you can make a Sherlock thing. You right now, you can go and make a Sherlock thing. You can sell it. You can write Sherlock fan fiction and put it in a book and sell it to a person Uh, in a way that you can't with, you know, anything that's not in the public domain, which is why there's like Sherlock the TV show and there's like the British Sherlock show and the American Sherlock show and there's like Sherlock with Robert Downey Jr. and they're all different Sherlock's, but you can do that because it's in the public domain. It isn't just like I can print a copy of a Sherlock Holmes book, which I could do, or record an audio book of it, like I could do all of those things. Right. But I can also use that character. Yeah. And that allows for all this freedom and all this creation that otherwise wouldn't happen and it allows Sherlock Holmes To continue living new lives, which I think is just so exciting. Yeah. And really, I think what most
0: creators would like the most is not for their descendants to make the most possible money from their intellectual property, Mm -hmm. but to have the work survive, to have... you know, the work and the characters be in conversation with the present in some way. Yeah. Like what you really want is for people to continue to care about your work because that kind of keeps the stories alive and contemporary even as they age. And so Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I agree. Like I would be happy if my work went into the public domain in, you know, less than 90 years or whatever the current number
1: is. Yeah. And I don't think that either of us have created a characters that will live the way that Sherlock did. But but, <laughs> yeah, they, but I think, think that there are lots of characters <laughs> out there like that that are not <laughs> that are not able to live that life. Right. Yeah, for sure. And lots of stories that ha- that, you know, for example, the people who are really big about preventing works from going into the public domain like Disney, like they had lots of stories that they profited off of that were not that were that were released in the public domain like Peter, Peter Pan. Like Cinderella, Snow White. I mean, the list is literally endless. It was all of their original things or just things that had already been created. They were in the public domain. They made them. And now they're like, actually, I'm not so sure that you can make that now because we kind of have we've kind of are kind of the people who made Peter Pan, Peter Pan. Of course, to make Peter Pan things.
0: Yeah. But they get annoyed when you try to make a Snow White thing that's too much like their Snow White thing.
1: Right. So that's the deal with the public domain. And I believe very strongly that things should enter the public domain sooner.
0: That said, Hank, you and I could both release our work into the public domain if we wanted to and we choose not to. (laughs) So, Yeah, well, I've only had like five years. (laughs) Let's not bathe ourselves in glory here. (laughs) I'm not ready to part ways (laughs) with looking for Alaska just yet. I may get there, but not today.
1: This next question, John, comes from Sarah Beth, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I was thinking the other day about how many people have been named Jose, and I was wondering... What is the most common name ever in the world? Not just people living right now, but if you look at names throughout all of history, what name has been used the most? I will never be the most common. Sarabeth. Hey, you don't know that. There is a long future for humanity ahead, I am hoping. And maybe Sarabeth is really going to catch on and there'll be billions of you someday. John, I found this question fascinating when I did a little bit of research because I was like, I don't know, maybe somebody knows the answer to this. Not only does no one know the answer to this, No one could know the answer to this, and two different people could come up with very different different answers, because do you count Joe's as Jose's? Do you count Sarah's with an H or without an H? Do you do you only use English or do you look in all of the languages? Do you consider the same name the same name if it isn't, you know, basically the same in one language from another or it's pretty different? Like, James, right, Like is John Giovanni. Exactly. Like very yeah. different names, but are they are the same name. So it, it's impossible to know because there are lots of subjective decisions that you would have to make. Yeah. Which also it's kind of beautiful to me that they're there. Like, it turns out that this thing that we would think is pretty objective turns out to would really require a lot of, dis- of subjective decision making on the part of the person doing the study. And that is often the case when we are studying things like this, sociological things, where people and, and like in in the way that people have done these analyses, they often say they often o- only count like individual spellings. Um, and so like, for example, Oliver would get a preference because there's really only one way to spell Oliver, but Muhammad would would not get a preference and, and might rank higher than Oliver, but is actually weighed on the list because there's like three or four different common ways to spell it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There are different ways to transliterate different names, but then also as names spread among languages, those names can be spelled or pronounced differently. I think, though, that We also can't know because we don't know the names of almost everyone who ever lived. That's the other thing. There's this common misconception that there are like a huge percentage of the people who ever lived are currently alive because population growth has been quite, quite dramatic, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and that's true. I mean, the global population has been doubling faster and faster over time and and but 93 to 95 maybe 97 billion people have have lived of whom like 7 billion are currently alive and and only like 40 or 50 billion
1: lived in the last 100 years right but and and also if you go back a couple or few hundred years we just don't know what those people's names were like not very many places have good records You could do it in, like, Ireland, and that's it. Not only
0: that, 99.9% of human history occurred more than 2,500 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Almost the whole time we've been here, we know quite little about, at least in terms of, like, what everybody's
1: name was. Oh, God, I would love to know what somebody's name was 50,000 years ago. Wouldn't that be cool to know? Yeah, I mean, we're not even totally sure that people had names
0: 50,000
1: years ago. I mean, I, I, they must have, they they must have had something like names. And I and like we're always like cavemen grug and ugg and I'm like no they would have had beautiful names or not I mean there's a lot of like beautiful languages
0: out there Hank but like maybe it all <laughs> sounded like Dutch and it just sounded like they were all clear in their throats <laughs> Wow gosh oh that's gosh. that's that's honestly all the Dutch people listening are just nodding in 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 acknowledgement <laughs> they know It's not a bad thing it's a great language it's extremely expressive it's just like
1: a lot of <sighs> All right. Keep going, John. You know more about the Dutch than I do. You lived there for a while. I'm sorry if I hurt any Dutch people's
0: feelings by saying that the language involves a lot of (laughs) but it does. (laughs) It's not. I mean, I mean. Look, American English, to be clear, is hideous. I, I'm aware. Like, I I hear when British people do American accents, I'm always like, oh, oh mm, geez. that's what we sound like. We,
1: we do make a lot of noise. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> it's also flat oh, and nasally. We get we get our ideas across.
0: I'd like a hamburger. I would. I believe in capitalism. <laughs> i believe that banks should never be
1: regulated (laughs) okay i don't have enough cars
0: (laughs) do you have any mayonnaise for this sandwich
1: (laughs) all right all right that's a little too close to home (laughs) the american accent
0: that's what we sound like to the rest of the world hank (laughs) This next question comes from Grace, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I didn't know the answer to this, Hank. I don't know if you know the answer, but I thought it was an interesting question. Why do we sleep in the dark? Like, if it's night outside and our bodies know it's night and we're tired and all that, why do we still
1: sleep better with the lights out? Amazingly, Grace. Oh, Grace, this is, you're going to have to, we're all going to have to get used to this thing that is hard to believe that we are not in control of our bodies and that there are lots of things happening way beyond our notice and completely out of our control. And one of those things is that dark makes us sleepy and light makes us less sleepy, even in situations where we would like to be sleeping. And we take that information in through our eyes and we we get that both through our eyelids a little bit, but also uh, when we sort of like rouse throughout the night and take in a little bit of light by opening our eyes a little bit. In ways that we would would never notice unless there is a bunch of light that would wake us up. So our circadian rhythms, which it defines when we get sleepy and how well we sleep and how stressed out we are uh, during sleep times, are controlled by the amount of light that we perceive, and only through our eyes, it seems like. Mm. There's was some thought that maybe our skin, because there are compounds in our skin that respond like chemically respond to to light, but um, it appears that People who, like blind people who have can sense no light, basically their circadian rhythms are not affected by the presence or absence of light. So it's it's just what we are seeing. And we are not in control of it and we are not aware of it, but it is a thing. And why evolutionarily is a separate question, but physiologically it is a rigid system. Let me
0: ask you a follow-up question. Is there any way that a nocturnal animal, in your opinion, could ever... Become like the sentient dominant species on the planet, or oh, is sure. being nocturnal just kind of an inherent problem?
1: Well, I, I think absolutely they could, but also they're nocturnal isn't actually that common of a trait. Like where they're asleep all day and awake all night. Mostly, what we have are uh, is diurnality, where what we think of as nocturnal species are active a little bit for a while after after night. Um, and then they go to back to bed. But but yeah, I, I don't see I don't see why not. Especially like they've got other ways of sensing the world around them. The c- question that keeps me up at night is whether that could happen to an organism that exists under the water. A superior fish being, if you will. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think about that all the time, specifically with octopuses more than fish these days, because I think it's like honestly now that I'm a little bit grown. I think that a superior fish being uh, would be much less likely than a superior cephalopod being. That seems very possible to me. They can do so much. They're so smart.
0: I read this book called At Day's Close, A History of Nighttime that talks about what night was like in medieval Eurasia for people, like in, you know, like say the 10th century. And people used to wake up for an hour or so at night. Yeah, And it was, it was this separate period of consciousness and wakefulness when different things happened that just doesn't exist anymore, which I find quite strange.
1: Yeah. Well, we got better systems now, I guess. I guess that's true. I mean, to some extent. There's not like as much to take care of in the middle of the night. That's true. It used to be that you get cold and you have to put another log on the fire, at least. All kinds of things. John, this next question comes from Clara and I'm asking it because like, I, uh, there are so many things that I should know and that I shouldn't be embarrassed to ask, including this one. Dear Hank and John, why are there poems and quotes from other works in <laughs> fiction books in between chapters in the beginning, etc.? How did that become a thing? How does an author choose them? And do I have to read them? <laughs> I guess they might establish themes, but I must admit that I sometimes just skip them if I want to keep reading the story. re-listening to old episodes always calms my anxiety. So thanks, Clara from Berlin. This is a great question, actually. I read a book
0: called The Art of the Epigraph by Rosemary Ahern, where I learned a lot about did. epigraphs. They really rose in prominence during the 18th century when writing and reading became more universal experiences in large parts of the world. Because mm-hmm. before that, Like there's just like when you were reading, say, Ovid, there was just an expectation that you'd also read a bunch of other, you know, Roman poets. And so they would make references and assume that you knew them. Right. And then there was this sort of tradition of collecting quotations from a lifetime of reading. Like the most famous example of this is this book, Bartlett's Familiar Quotations, that Mm. it's like 2000 pages long and has thousands and thousands of quotes.
1: Would it have been like a big deal if you were a writer? Would you be like fishing for a Bartlett's mention? Oh, for sure. sure.
0: I mean, oh, that's being cool. mentioned in Bartlett's even like 20 years ago was as close as most writers could expect to come to immortality. <laughs> okay. It's, it, it's wild ah. how fast that changed. I mean, I still have three or four editions of, of Bartlett's, but now, of course, like if you want to quote, the internet has them. Th- they yeah. aren't accurate, but they have them. <laughs> So the use of these epigraphs is partly uh, to talk about theme or to set a tone or to make reference to something that the book or the story or the chapter is a response to. Mm-hmm. It's also often used as a way of trying to like set expectations or put yourself as a writer in a certain category. But the thing that I found so so interesting about this is that Almost from the moment epigraphs began to be used in fiction books, novelists began making up epigraphs. Like George Eliot, for instance, used fictional epigraphs in her work Hmm. that didn't acknowledge their fictionality. So like, so almost from the beginning, fiction writers were playing with the idea of like, this is true, this isn't. And that's something that I liked so much that I did it in The Fault in Our Stars. Like there's a made up epigraph in The Fault in Our Stars. I like
1: epigraphs in general. I like them most when they are made up. I mean, yeah, I I love epigraphs in science fiction when it's it's a system of world building where you're like setting the stage and you're setting yeah. the tone and like you, and and you're also like creating the existence of a book, an important book or an important thinker or author in that world who doesn't exist in our world. And it's it's always seemed to me a little bit Uh, pretentious. Right. Especially because it's oftentimes it's like holy books or like just deeply important, uh, meaningful works of philosophy in the universe of science fiction. And then, but the author of the book is just writing this stuff that we are now supposed to as readers. And, you know, we do like imagine that as like world changing foundational philosophy for these people. But it's just like some guy named Frank came up with it. (laughs) It is it, 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 it like you, you couldn't get away with it if outside of an epigraph almost. Right. That's that's exactly right. Do
0: you you don't have epigraphs for either of your books, do you? No, I did not. I maybe have... God. I don't think you do. I don't think I do. I didn't have one for looking for Alaska or an abundance of Catherine's. I had one for Turtles all the way down, and then I had the made-up one for Fault in Our Stars. I had one for Turtles all the way down because... Just
1: one at the beginning,
0: is that? Yeah, just yeah. one at the beginning. Man, man can do what he wills, but he cannot will what he wills, which is a Schopenhauer quote which is, you know, pretentious philosophy. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to have it because I didn't know how else to say this is a book that never mentions the phrase free will that is about free will. Right. Like I, di- I didn't know how else to say that. And like, maybe if the book is good enough, it can do that on its own. But I think it's I wanted to establish at the outset that like for me and for this book, the problem is not the question of of will. It's the question of being able to will what you will. there's a turtles all the way down element to free will that I was also trying to explore alongside of like, you know, obsessiveness and recursion. Right. And so that was like a super useful quote for me in thinking as I was writing the book. And so I decided to put it in the book, but I have often worried like, oh boy, it does, it does set a bit of a pretentious tone.
1: Yeah. There there is an element of pretension and and like, I didn't really get why until I wrote uh, novels. But now when I read books that have epigraphs, I'm like, are you just bragging that you've like, like read a bunch of cool books? <laughs> like it's what it feels like that you like read in a sophisticated way that you like even know about this quote. How do you know about this? And sometimes I'm like, you deserve, you absolutely deserve. And, and like, you know, oftentimes novelists are English professors and or or professors of writing at universities. And so like they do a lot of reading. So it makes sense that they would have this like big backlog of amazing Thoughtful quotes, but like I don't have that. And so if I did a bunch of ep- if I did epigraphs before every chapter, I'd be on like Quotapedia or whatever every day, and like, <laughs> just type in death and see what good death quotes there are. Just you don't have like my a, way in.
0: You don't have like a like a Google Doc or a notebook you keep like when you oh, read a God, book no. that
1: you love that uh, of lines from it. No, John. All of my notebooks are full of like m- meetings from budget presentations.
0: I mean, the Anthropocene reviewed book is. Probably ninety five percent me taking <laughs> that Google Doc and turning it into a book.
1: Yeah, God,
0: it's just a stitch together of of quotes that I I love, <laughs> interspersed with a memoir.
1: We're so we're so we have such similar paths, but such different minds. <laughs> yeah, although I will say
0: that one thing I like about your writing, Hank, that I try to emulate in my own is that even though you are pretentious. There's no like question about it. You're you're a little <laughs> bit pretentious as a writer, of course. You are also self-aware, like you you understand what you're doing well enough to be able to make a little bit of fun of it. And the thing I find most unbearable about writers is when they they can't make fun of themselves. Like it's so cringy to me to hear. And I I won't name names, but like there are some very famous writers who Mm -hmm. genuinely think that they are geniuses and it's so uncomfortable. And it also just, like, it tells a story to readers that isn't true. It tells a story of, like, oh, this, you know... Yeah. I I am a famous writer because of my incredible talent and because the muse whispers into my ear each morning the great love
1: stories of our time. Mm -hmm. And I want to be like, no, you, you... No, you're a regular person. I mean, all of it you come to understand is, you know, narrative building. And so they want to build a story that people will understand as they're reading the book about like the greatness of the author. And lots of authors do that. And like, I think that it can deepen your enjoyment of a book if you believe it. But we are kind of we've moved out of that part of our history, especially with like, I certainly could never make that case because like you've seen YouTube videos of me humping an elk statue. The, right. Like I, I could never have pulled that off. <laughs> I'm in the same boat. You have to be a little bit
0: self-aware because you know <laughs> that people are like, no, nah, I know that guy. He's an idiot.
1: You've seen my TikToks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hank, this all reminds me of a great story about William Faulkner. Um, so oh, William God. Faulkner, who's that's an American a, novelist, a, I don't even know if this story is true, but I'm going to tell it. Okay. William Faulkner is like bird hunting with the famous American actor. I don't even know who. Let's say Clark Gable. And, uh, <laughs>
1: okay.
0: And they're talking about, they're, they're with a couple other people and they're talking about writing. And Clark Gable says, Mr. Faulkner, who are who are your favorite authors? And Faulkner says, well, I suppose uh, John Dos Passos and myself. And <laughs> Clark Gable says, oh, Mr. Faulkner, you write? And Faulkner says, "Yeah, Mr. Gable, what do you do?"
1: <laughs> I mean, that that is that is the, the the crux of the story is correct. I've found it. And uh, <laughs> did I get did I miss you, the, did I get Clark Gable right? No, it oh. wasn't even an actor. Oh. it was a it was a newspaperman. Dang, it's so it's a much better story with Clark Gable than it yeah, is with and a journalist. See, the, the quote was, "Do you write, Mr. Faulkner?" and then he was and then he informed him that he had he had won the Nobel Prize in literature.
0: Oh, dang. I guess that's a that's a pretty good comeback to be like I do. Yes, and indeed an academy in Sweden acknowledged my contributions.
1: Yeah, it's like when it's like when uh, people ask me if it's my first VidCon. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a little different. It's a little have, different from when
0: people ask you if it's if your first have, VidCon.
1: If we have uh, aroused any suspicion that we might be humble people, we have now <laughs> completely uh, like made clear that that was an illusion.
0: That is your Nobel Prize, Hank, is having founded VidCon. That is... Look, I got... <laughs> it,
1: it's something. <laughs>
0: Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by the Nobel Prize in Literature. The Nobel Prize in Literature, soon to be won, no question,
1: no doubt, by Hank Green. (laughs) This podcast is also brought to you by my new podcast, where I just read public domain books and then question mark and then profit. I don't know. I still think that's a good idea. Today's podcast is also brought to you by superior cephalopod beings,
0: superior cephalopod beings far more realistic than superior fish beings.
1: And finally, this podcast is brought to you by uh, a pretentious epigraph. Just any pretentious (laughs) epigraph that shows how clever and well-read the author is.
0: You know the best one? The one that's in, like, fully 35% of literary novels is that uh, George Eliot, quote, If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat, and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. Which is a great, great line, Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet. With the same powerful clean that you're used to, Blue Land products are effective and affordable, and their toilet tablets are proven to work on a wide range of toilet stains, including rust, mineral deposits, lime scale, and hard water. And you can even get more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. Blue Land has a special offer for our listeners right now. You can get fifteen percent off your first order by going to blueland.com/dearhank. You won't want to miss this blueland.com slash Dear Hank for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash Dear Hank to get 15% off.
1: John, this next question comes from- Hey, 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 uh, Hank, uh, do you want
0: uh, me to uh, intersperse some quotes from my uh, quote document through the rest of the podcast? (laughs) Because I'm happy to.
1: Yeah, great. Just at the end, between every between every question from now. On, sure. And before before and after the news. Sure. John, this next question comes from Caleb, who asks, dear Hank and John, I'm researching my little brother. When does researching become spying? Caleb, <laughs> I mean, immediately, right? Well, No. Well, because you already know everything about your little brother that that you should know. No, because if you're like interviewing your little
0: brother, if you say, hey, you know, I want to get to know you a little bit better. And I'm wondering if I can ask you a few questions. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite color? What do you want to, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Stuff like that. That's
1: research. Mm -hmm. If you're like rifling through your little brother's (laughs) stuff, that's fine. What about asking questions of people in his life without him
0: knowing? Oh, I think with a non-famous person- the line is whether or not they're aware of being researched. <laughs> and then I think with a famous person, the line is, hey, um, are you like looking at me at a restaurant, which is spying, or like reading about yeah. them on Wikipedia, which is researching?
1: Mm. There's got to be, that that was, just two, that was just two examples. I want rules. I don't have firm rules, Hank. I know. Uh, that's the problem with the world. Like because ultimately if you're going to like write a biography of a person, you do kind of have to do some more research. You're going to have to get like primary sources. And maybe if the person's dead, you're going to like read all their old letters. That feels like spying.
0: Yeah, I think it's a place where it's really hard to know what the rules are, Hank, which actually reminds me of something Henry David Thoreau wrote oh, in God. his journal. Any fool can make a <laughs> rule, and any fool will mind it. <laughs> wow. I'm,
1: That's a I'm good here one all week. I'm here all week. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, what can you just answer questions from our listeners with just dope quotes? Well, Hank, you know what William Carlos Williams says no ideas oh but in things. Well, let's have this be a thing then. <laughs> This question's from Sydney, who asks, dear Hank and John, I'm a longtime listener, and I've noticed that you guys frequently talk about how arbitrary categories are. You've touched on why categories are flawed, but in what ways are they useful? Why do we have to group stuff together with stuff that is similar, but not the same? Continents and categories, Sydney. Can you do it? What do you got in there? All right, Hank, as Audre Lorde wrote, it is through poetry that we give names
0: to those ideas which are, until the poem, nameless and formless, about to be birthed but already felt. And what I mean by that is that one of Mm. the main things categories can do is give us names and form for ideas that are difficult to find language for. Categories can be a way of creating language around something. The problem is when we forget that we are creating that language.
1: Yeah, it, but it's it's completely it's completely understandable that we would have that reaction when when language is so so often the filter through which we understand our world. We just have to f- push against that.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of something that Mary Oliver once wrote. Oh this, gosh, the one world we all belong to, where everything sooner or later is part of everything else. Mm. There are no categories, Hank, because everything sooner or later is part of everything else.
1: God, John, I'm shocked. Like, actually- I can do this all day. That first quote, like, I couldn't, I was, I did not believe that you are gonna be able to do that at all, let alone find a quote that was, like, actually very apropos. And then that second one, also, very good in that moment. So I'm feeling outclassed. Frankly, do you want to do the news for Mars and AFC Wimbledon?
0: Yeah, but first I need to quote Pope John Paul II. It's probably, unfortunately, he never said this, which is a real bummer. Um, he was a big football fan, but he probably never actually said of all the unimportant things, football is the most important. But it's so true. <laughs> and and of course, of all oh, the God. football teams, AFC Wimbledon is the most important. Hank. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> It's not good. It's not a good situation in South London at the moment on a lot of levels. Uh But the level at which we talk about on the podcast is the third tier English football level. AFC Wimbledon have uh, garnered just a single point, one draw from their last seven league games. That's not good. You want at least like one point per game on average. Uh You don't want one seventh of a point per game on average. (laughs) Oh, God. So it's a really difficult Uh. time. Now, obviously, like a bunch of players having COVID or having to self-isolate during this period has not been helpful. Mm -hmm. But yikes, it's not great. And it's definitely at this point capital W worrisome. I would say that we're in a level three or four emergency at this point. We're at the point where I feel like I need to like open up the window from level three and say like, buy some players. And then w- Wimbledon shouts back, we don't have any money.
1: <laughs> Can you give us some? <sighs> i uh i'm sorry so that's not good but hank i have good oh. news Ooh, okay i have
0: really good news there's a knockout competition that afc wimbledon plays in unfortunately it's called the papa john's trophy oh no uh it, you know it has a naming sponsor <laughs> and over the years it's had some good sponsors and now it's got a really somehow or another afc wimbledon have managed to make it to the last eight of this competition weird I know. Winning the wrong games. I I am aware we are definitely winning the wrong games, but we've beaten some pretty good teams on our way to the top eight. And now, amazingly, Wimbledon are just two wins away from playing at Wembley, England's (laughs) national stadium in front of no fans, for the Papa John's trophy. A real thing that you can win in sports. But I mean, Hank, it's a real competition and... I mean, I I guess we could theoretically win it. We don't know who we're playing in the next round yet. Uh, That draw does not happen until January 23rd. But it could be Sunderland, which is this team that plays in the third tier of English football, even though they have like 30,000 season ticket holders and pay individual players more than AFC Wimbledon's entire budget for the season. (laughs) But it could also be in the next round the franchise currently plying its trade <gasps> in Milton Keynes. Really? Yeah.
1: They also made it to the eight.
0: They also they also made it to the final eight. That's very weird cuz they're not good either. They're not good. But this is a competition to be clear that mostly pits not good teams against each other. Mm. It used to be known as the John Stones paint trophy, if you remember that from previous episodes of the pod, because I know you have a photographic memory of every time I talk about the news from AFC Wimbledon and you don't zone out at all. What's the news from Mars?
1: Uh, And news from Mars was also some sad news that we have officially ended the professional career of the InSight Mole. So it is now just a piece of of technology sitting on the surface of Mars that we're not going to try and do anything else with. So this thing, the heat flow and physical properties package. That was deployed as part of the InSight Lander to dig into Mars and learn about the the planet. And it was supposed to go like really deep into the planet. Tell us a bunch about how heat moves around inside of Mars. It would tell us a lot about the crust of Mars. Turns out the soil is tricky. And probably what happened is that this there's just not enough friction in the soil to hold it. Uh, and so it was just bouncing up and down in, in the ground. And... After all of the work that was done to try and get this thing down 10 feet, it only went down about two centimeters. So on January 9th, the team decided to officially end the uh, end the mission, that part of uh, the inside mission. Now, always when you fail at something on Mars, well, not always, but often when you fail at something on Mars. And in this case, you do learn things, the structure of the soil, for example, We also learned that it's hard to get. A digger in so we would have to do that in a different way if we tried to do it in the future and and also we learned how to use the robotic arm of the insight lander in strange ways that it was not designed to do so maybe we will do that again in the future it wasn't like it was just like a thing that just didn't even turn on and didn't do anything we did get some useful data out of it if it it just wasn't about the uh the heat of the interior of mars which is what we were going for dang it yeah i
0: it, that really is too bad because I, I know all those scientists like built the thing on Earth to try to figure out oh, yeah. what the issues could be. Hard. And uh-huh. ah that's disappointing. So there's a lot we won't be learning about like the seismic activity on Mars that we were hoping to better understand about Mars quakes.
1: Yeah, the we still have good data on Mars quakes. And, and Insight is still one of the things that it does is it is able to use earthquakes to sort of map the interior of Mars. This was uh, like to be able to like detect how heat would move around inside of the planet would tell us different things about the interior.
0: It reminds me of something that Carl Sagan wrote once. Maybe we're on Mars because of the magnificent science that can be done there, that the gates of the wonder world are opening in our time. Or maybe we're on Mars because we have to be, because there's a deep nomadic impulse built into us by the evolutionary process. We come, after all, from hunter-gatherers. And for 99.9% of our tenure on Earth, we've been wanderers and the next place to wander to is Mars. It's true. It's great. He was good at that. It's the next place to wander to, Hank. He was good at that. But not not until at least 2028. That was the last thing that Carl Sagan said in that long <laughs> quote about Mars. He said, we should go to Mars. We should. It's so important. It is. But not until 2028. Carl Sagan.
1: John, thank you for making a podcast with me. We're off to record our Patreon-only podcast this weekend Stuff, where we talk about stuff that we like this week. Hopefully, uh, there will be some of that and uh, you can find out more at patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. Uh, and all that money goes to help fund all the things that we do at Complexly. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosianna Halser and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Debuki Chakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the Great Gonorola. And as they say in our hometown, don't forget, don't forget to be awesome. awesome.